This is Women in STEM Career and Confidence, the podcast for scientific and professional women who want to restore confidence, make meaningful impact, and balance the things and people that mean most to them. I'm Dr. Hannah Roberts, and I'll be sharing with you insights and inspiration into the mindset and skill set to help you navigate your career and lead powerfully. It's recorded live and outdoors. So anything could happen. So welcome, Izzy. And I was so excited to have you here today. For everybody who is listening, I want to kick off with a question for Izzy. And I just want to get a sense of how you got to this point in your life so far. So I'd love to hear a little bit about what's brought you into the arena of becoming a clinician scientist? Where did that all begin? Well, first of all, I want to say thank you, Hannah, for inviting me to contribute to your podcast. Uh, It's going to be an interesting experience. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess um, talking about what made me want to be a clinician scientist or want to go down the route of becoming a clinician scientist Um, I attended medical school in Nigeria, where I'm from. Um, I was born and grew up there. And um, in medical school, I very quickly realized that I was really drawn to the, what we call basic science parts of the medical training. So the way medical schools, the way medical um, school is structured in Nigeria is you have uh, the first three years of what we call the basic medical sciences that so you do things like anatomy and physiology and clinical biochemistry um, and then for the last three years you do the more clinical bits medicine surgery obstetrics and gynecology pediatrics that kind of thing um, and during my clinical years um, I was thrilled when the patients got better but I always found myself going back to well why do some patients um, present with certain symptoms and others don't? Could it be something different in the biology of, I don't know, their immune system or the biology of the disease? And those kinds of questions really stuck with me. And after graduating medical school, I did my one year of internship or we call house job in a different institution that was a bit more research focused um, than the institution in which I'd gone to medical school. And there, the, the consultant uh, clinicians who I worked with had a real interest in the basic science side of things. And I was able to answer a bit more questions and delve a bit deeper into the underlying science behind clinical presentations of different diseases. And that informed my decision to study for a master's degree in immunology, because I thought the immune system is this big wide system that almost I want to say controls everything um, that we see in the clinic. So I thought I need to get a good grasp of the immune system and understanding the immune system and what happens in disease and health. So I moved to the UK, uh, did a master's in immunology at King's College London, and I was hooked. I had such a good time doing my master's. I enjoyed the learning. I really enjoyed working in the labs. 
And I remember saying to my friends, like, I wouldn't mind not going back to clinical medicine. I'm just going to stay in the lab and be a scientist. Um, but then after, so then after my master's, I, I wanted to get a bit more um, laboratory experience. So I was fortunate enough to get funded for about six months to work as a research technician in the same lab in which I did my master's. And while I was doing that, I was applying for PhD programs um, and then I got funded to do a PhD um, straight on after working as a technician. Um, I learned so much during that time. Um, and towards the end of my PhD, I found out, or rather while I was undertaking my PhD, I found out that there was the opportunity to become what's called a clinician scientist. So essentially huh? it meant you would be able to do your clinical work in the NHS and also work as a research scientist, testing hypotheses. Uh, coming up with research ideas and, and essentially continue on research and I thought this is what I want to do this will tick all the boxes for me um yeah and here we are today um, I just want to pick up on a few things there so what was important to you about continuing with the NHS as well as the research because you said ah oh, it was really my thing and I could ask the questions and I love the research so why was it still important to be part of the NHS? I think um, I, I wanted to remain a part of the NHS because I did my PhD in a really translational institution. So translation means taking the knowledge or the, the drug discoveries or the drug, drug therapies from the lab bench to the patient's bedside. Mm -hmm. and, and during my, the, my PhD, um, the ethos of the institution where I did my PhD had made a real impact on me. And I thought, I thought to myself, yes, it's, it's great to be able to come up with research ideas and test the hypothesis, but it needs to make a difference. Mm. Um, and for me, making the difference wasn't just in terms of finding new therapies, but also in terms of, for example, increasing diagnostics or being able to get patients diagnosed earlier or quicker or just mitigating some of their symptoms, even just if, if, if it was just a little bit to improve their quality of life. And I thought to myself, I, I think I'd, I'd really like to continue this as well. This is why I went to medical school after all. Um, mm -hmm. And if I can do this along with, alongside doing research, then I, I just get the best of both worlds. Mm, it's almost like being able to take the idea from yourself and see it all the way through yeah. completion which is such a rare thing to be so close to the impact that you're yeah. making yes I know I, I, I think that um, being able to have a career as a clinician scientist is a really privileged position mm -hmm. and I, I count myself really fortunate to be able to work in this space yeah mm -hmm. So once you got that clinician scientist role, what's happened since then? How does that evolve? Okay, so um, technically I'm not actually a clinician scientist yet. So when you get to like the end of the, the, the training pathway, then you're considered a clinician scientist. So um, the way uh, clinical academic training works in the UK is there are specialist posts um, that doctors can apply for, which give them protected time to do research along different, um, at different po points of their career. Um, these posts are few um, and can be quite competitive. 
especially depending on the region in which you're based, depending on the specialty in which you want to work. But um, also what's really great about clinical academic training in the UK is if you have a bit of an interest, you don't have to go via one of these rare and competitive posts. Um, you can express your interest. There will be other clinical academics who will be kind enough to maybe bring you on as part of the project, have you work on um, little parts of the project. Um, you can apply for external funding almost independently of the set pathway, and you can dip in and out of the pathway at whatever stage you're, you're at. So that always works really well, um, because not everyone who's, who thinks they want to be a, a clinician scientist is going to want to stick to the pathway. And mm. And it, they, they make it easy for you. The, the way the pathway is structured and the way the program works is it's easy for you to decide, hang on a minute, maybe this isn't for me, I want to dip out, or life happens to someone and you can't continue and you want to dip out, but you always have the option of coming back at a later point. Ah. Um, the pathway is structured, it makes it quite easy for you to, to, to do that. So what I did was um, after my PhD, I applied for specialist training, um, and once I started on the specialist training pathway, I then, um, I'm a very inquisitive person, I ask a lot of questions. So I started to ask questions about well, what, how can I get back onto this pathway? What can I apply for? Um, I found out what positions were available. I started to apply, started by applying for the more junior positions. So in my case, that's what's called an academic clinical fellowship. Uh -huh. um, now I should preempt this by saying, technically, academic clinical fellowships are meant for doctors who don't have PhDs. Mm -hmm. And the idea is to give you a bit of research exposure and then using that research exposure and some preliminary data, maybe apply for a, a PhD fellowship. Um, but when I applied for my uh, academic clinical fellowship or ACF as they're called, I already had a PhD, but I had, um, I had my daughter um, about, about a year after I submitted my thesis and then I went on maternity leave. So at the point at which I wanted to come back into research, I'd been out of the research for over two years. And I'd also moved to a new city. I changed um, institution and I was changing research field as well. So the basis of my application was that, yes, I have a PhD, but I need this protected time to be able to remember what research is about, to be able to... Mm ask questions in my new institution, in the new field, who can I work with, what kind of projects are available. Um, so yeah, that was the way I pitched my, my, um, my uh, that, that was the way I pitched at, at interview and uh, thankfully I got the job, um, was able to get back on track, figure out what it was I wanted to do, and then applied for a more senior position, which is, the, um, which is called an academic clinical lectureship. Now, the lectureships are for people who've completed PhDs or have PhDs and are trying to get some postdoctoral type experience, having uh -huh. first go at independent research in a way. Um, and then you still have protected clinical time to complete your clinical training and become a consultant. Um, and at the end, at the point at which you're completing your training, maybe before you become a consultant, then you would apply for a um, what are typically, typically called clinician scientist fellowships. Now these are huge grants, usually last uh -huh. about five years, and they give you the space and time again to start to establish your independent research group. 
So maybe they would give you money to hire a, a postdoc, a research assistant, maybe you'd have one or two PhD students. And then that would be the point at which you're like, okay, I'm starting as a, an independent PI um, and you'd progress your career from there. Whilst also still doing clinical work yes. as well, yes. even yes. at that stage. Yes. Yeah. So I'm currently at the um, clinical lecturer phase. So doing mm. the kind of postdoctoral work to get ready for becoming an independent PI. Mm. So you spend a couple of years now getting your research to the point where you've got an established you know, question, you've got some data, you've gone and applied for grants and you've been successful with some of those grants as well. Yeah. And I know that you've just had a new grant come in. So you finally got your own technician pair of hands to do the work while you're not there which is huge yes yeah that's that's absolutely amazing and for me it was and it is the same for most for most um, clinical academics having a pair of hands in the lab or collecting data if you're doing qualitative research is so important because when you're on clinical time it's really difficult to be able to, to, to ensure continuity of your project. Uh-huh. And for clinical academics, the continuity is what suffers a lot. Because you're essentially doing two jobs. You're expected to do two jobs in the same amount of time you, in which you would do one job. Uh-huh. Um, and I know clinical academics who end up having to go into the labs or to analyze their data at the weekends or after work after work closes and yes that's what some people do but it's not really sustainable no no not if you're doing so before you didn't have the clinical work on the side it was just the academic tract and that's that's the it had to work in order for you to be able to go back in the NHS do that job and still have something happening in the labs while you're not there otherwise that research just like you said, either it falls to you to come in at evenings and weekends to continue it or it doesn't happen. Yeah. So, I, 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 sorry, I'm just going to say, I mean, yeah. yes, funding is, is tight. Successful mm-hmm. grants are few and far between. And some people are able to um, establish collaborations with people who are, um, let's say, lab-based or on the ground doing the actual qualitative research and they're able to get their data um, by collaborating with those um, other lab-based or field-based researchers. So again, that's an option. Um, and to be honest, that was a, a backup plan I had in case my grant didn't come through. But, it, but it's always great. It, it's a great feeling to have someone working, dedicate, having being dedicated to working on your project because you know that that is their focus. That is their main focus. So all things being equal, your data is going to continue to come through because there is a dedicated person working on that project. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you are in a really great position now of having got that grant and you've been back in the NHS now for six months. How have you found going back in the NHS after being out for a couple of years? Um, well, I've actually been back uh, since school. I went back start of July so that's about six or seven weeks okay after having been out for two years and three months I think mm-hmm. um I have to be say it's a 
it's been a, quite a steep learning curve um, or a steep relearning curve, maybe I should say. Um, one thing that was important for me, that was key for me, was managing my expectations and managing the expectations of the people I was going to be working with. So, because I'm, I'm, I'm a registrar, so I'm a doctor in training. So, managing the expectations of the consultants I was going to be working with. Because, um, as an aside, when you start on clinical academic training, one thing you're always told is if you're in a hurry to become a consultant, then maybe this pathway isn't for you because it does extend your training because you keep dipping out of clinical time to do research things. Um, so I'm on a training program that classically would take about five to six years. And I know it's going to take me much longer than that just mm -hmm. because I, I, I'd, be, I'd be away for so long doing research. So um, yeah, managing my own expectations, managing expectations of the consultants about what my capabilities were um, and um, having those conversations about the fact that I've been away for a while, I might not, most, not might not, I will, I most probably will not be where you expect me to be. So having those conversations, um, and I have to say my department was really great because I had uh, meetings, a meeting with the head of the consult, uh, the head of the department, they're called the training program director, and we had, um, we talked about Um, what my goals would be, what timeline I was giving myself, um, what would be realistic for me to expect. Um, and that was really helpful. And I found the consultants to all, have, all the consultants have been really great um, because no one is expecting me to work magic having been away for so long. And I, to be, the funniest thing is I find I'm the one putting pressure on myself Mm -hmm. I'd say to myself, well, I should be able to do this. So I find I'm, I'm pushing hard to be able to get back up to where I think I should be really quickly. Um, and maybe it's because of my personality type. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm having to remind myself that, okay, you need to take a step back, take a breather. It's fine. It's fine. Just take your time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it, it's the first few weeks were very steep. Really yeah. steep learning curve, relearning curve. Mm, and you've got that combination of still, you've gone from the academics, so there's still expectations on the academic side of them oh, yeah. emailing and asking questions oh, throughout yeah. the day as well as trying to do do your job. Um, so along that pathway so far, if you think about key moments along the pathway, what have you found most challenging? Mm. Um, I think for me, the first critical moment was deciding that clinical academic training was something I wanted to do. Having a conversation with myself and saying, this is something I want to do. Um, having a conversation with my partner mm. and saying, this is something I wanted to do. Because like I said, I, like I said before, I am inquisitive, so I, I ask lots of questions. So I ask loads of people what their experience of uh, clinical academic training was like. And something that stood out to me right from the start was having a support network, uh -huh. not just on the clinical front or on the academic front, but also in your personal life. Because a clinical academic job is exceedingly busy. Like I said, it's, you're expected to do two jobs um, in, the time, in the space of time that people do one job. 
yeah so having that conversation with my partner about what this this um uh career pathway was likely to entail um about the the kind of support i would likely need and whether that was something we could work on together basically because it'd be a joint effort um so once I decided that critical that that was critical for me, deciding that I wanted to do this pathway, um, the next so once I decided I'm a planner and I make lots of lists. <laughs> so oh, I know this to be true, <laughs> and it, it kind of is evidence there in the fact that you're the sort of person who went and spoke to other people who've done it and found out what it was all about and really thought through if it was you know the right next step for you, whereas mm-hmm. other people make really quick snap decisions in the way that they um, approach life. So it's really interesting to see that kind of part of you expressed in that way too. Yeah, I mean, I think till, till we started to have our conversations, I never, I would have never used this word to describe myself, but I think I'm a very intentional person. Mm. I, I think through decisions I make, not about things like what we're going to have for dinner. It's not. It's not. Not. Not that deep. But <laughs> but things that I. It's things I consider important. Like for my, in terms of my my job, my career. Um, I consider my career to be a really important. It's going to be an important part of my life. Important part of my partner's life. So, uh, family life with kids. And I, I. So I said to myself, I need to be intentional and be sure. About what it is I think I want to do mm-hmm. so making lists and ask, talking to people and I think the next critical point was after deciding yes I want to be a clinical to clinical academic uh, go down the clinical academic pathway was deciding in what specialty mm. I want to do the clinical academic pathway because apart from being intentional I don't know this might not be a popular opinion but I'm very realistic realistic in terms of what I will and will not accept in my life or for my life Um, and I had I think I had there were three specialties in my mind that I thought I would want to do there were some I knew I was not going to do so I wouldn't bother applying for them Mm -hmm. Um, so I had three specialties in my mind again I had a conversation with my partner about because some of the specialties involve things like on calls and so it would be really intense and my partner does he's a uh, doctor as well and he works mm-hmm. in a, a high intensity specialty as well um, and at that point we didn't have any close family around so it was a conversation of and remember I, I was pregnant around this time I found out I was pregnant around this time so it was having that conversation of well how are we gonna do this with a child mm. what are our options what kind of specialties would I want to work in what would having two parents doing on calls without family support around what would that entail and so that was another critical moment Um, and I'm happy with my decision because like I said I, I said to myself I work is a huge part of my life and I will only do something that I am happy doing I will only work in a specialty that I am happy working in. And I think I made the right choice for me because I'm really happy on my clinical side. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, I remember you talking about 
you've, you've said how important work is to you, but you've also in the past told me how important family life is to you as well. So what is your outlook on work-life balance, shall we say? Mm. That's an interesting question. Um, I know there's always loads of conversations about what's the right balance. And I think as I've grown older or moved progress in my career, I think I'm now of the opinion that it's more of a continuum. Mm-hmm. It is a continuum. So I, I am a fan of having boundaries. Yes, I'm a fan of having set boundaries. But also, I am flexible enough to shift mm-hmm. if it's required. So if there is a pressing deadline for something academic, um, I am flexible enough to say, okay, I can only meet this deadline if I do some work on a Saturday. Mm-hmm. And I am willing to do that for that deadline yeah but not say I will work every Saturday and Sunday because I have to you know and I think we literally just had this conversation in a group coaching call it's the intentionality of having a boundary in the first place so that you know if if you're going to accept something that goes beyond that boundary or not because if you don't have the boundary in the first place it's just like you said, a muddy pool of work, water where you are working continuously evenings, weekends. Yeah. When the boundary's there, then you've got the awareness to know, do I accept to do that or do I not? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, as an example, um, we have my, we agreed with my daughter that, um, so I've got a little girl who's almost six, and we agreed that uh, we were going to have a movie evening. But I also knew that I had a piece of work that I needed to get to finalise and send off to someone for comments first thing tomorrow morning. So I, we sat down as a family and said, OK, mummy needs to work this morning into early afternoon. But mm-hmm. We'll still have our, our movie the evening. And I've done that work during the morning. I mm-hmm. finished it. And we're having this conversation now. And I know that by four o'clock, she would expect to have her movie on. I think we're watching Moana. <laughs> we'll have the movie. Oh, I do love Moana. <laughs> <laughs> Popcorn ready, like movie, movie evening ready with mom and dad sat there. We have no excuses. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So still fulfilling upon your promises, but being really open and clear about when she can expect to receive those <laughs> as well. No, and I've heard you talk about how at weekends you do so much with her as well. And I think having those boundaries in place really help. I'd love to ask you a bit more about if there's been any real challenges that you've faced along the way as well. So what have you found really difficult to handle? Um, I think... Again, maybe this ties into expectations, but the when I transitioned from being um, an ACS, an academic clinical fellow, which is a relatively junior post, to an ACL, an academic clinical lecturer, the transition was quite 
sharp for me in the sense that by the time I became a lecturer, suddenly I felt like so much more was expected of me and I felt really unprepared. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, I felt really unprepared. Um, it was almost like, well, now you're a lecturer, so yeah, you need to achieve this, 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 and this. And I'm like, I have no idea how I meant to do that. Um, and I don't know if I'd been insulated as a, an ACF, but again, as a kind of a lecturer, I was suddenly having more people come up to me and give me their opinions of what they thought I was doing. <laughs> in oh. terms, yeah, they were really strong opinions um, said in passing, like some really strange comments about my suitability or my capabilities or whether or not I should have been appointed in the first place. Um, and I never experienced any of that during mm. my uh, academic sense of fellowship. And I was thrown for a loop. Um, it made me question, because I'm, I'm, I'm a fairly confident person. Mm. Um, but that first period, those first few months really made me question um, whether I wanted to continue on this track, um, whether I needed to change institutions which I didn't want to do because I thought nowhere is perfect. There's always going to be something somewhere, but I was stuck. I really didn't know what to do. Um, and I raised this point with my, my, my partner, my husband, and he, he's almost like a, <laughs> like a coach in my head because he said, okay, this is something you, I know this is something you want to do. And I know you can succeed. We need to get you to believe that you can succeed. What do you think you would need for that to happen? Oh, wow. What great yeah. coach questions for your husband. And I said, I don't know. I need a, maybe a mentor or something. And he said, where can you find a mentor? Uh, there, is there a place where you can go to look for mentorship? Do you want to look for mentorship in your current institution? Um, and at that time, I remembered that the Academy of Medical Sciences was offering mentorship opportunities for clinical lecturers. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll contact them. And I, worked, I was placed with a really great mentor, really fantastic um, senior scientist um, who's based in Cambridge. And we still keep in touch till today, but she's a phenomenal scientist, a phenomenal woman. She's a real straight shooter. Mm -hmm. um, and it was, it was just really nice to have someone external listen to my pathway, what I'd done and where I'd come from and what I'd achieved, what I'd, well, where I was now. And the first thing she said to me was, the fact that you've done all that means that you're, you're the right, you were the right person for the job. So yeah. you need to get that in your mind, clear in your mind first. And having her has been a real, she was a real godsend. But and this is an in my career yeah it's a really great distinction for everybody because people often get all the different modalities mixed up so we know that a mentor is somebody who has walked the path that you want to walk mm -hmm. they're further along that pathway and essentially they can show you that pathway and make it easier or faster so essentially collapse time for you by giving you the you know, the, either the confidence boost or the key pieces of information, or you should do this next. It's like um, telling you <laughs> the behind the scenes of how to do that thing mm -hmm. to get there. So you have that piece. And I know that obviously you've also had coaching too. So how have you found coaching 
different to the mentorship then? Um, that's a really great question. I think, so with my mentor, she's been really great in terms of, she's worked, walked down the clinician scientist route and now she's an established clinician scientist with a huge group. Um, and so she's been able to help me from the perspective of, when I say, oh, my medium and long-term plans in terms of clinician scientist applications, she's able to say, well, you are you thinking about this? You should be thinking about that. These are the kind of things funding bodies want to see. These are the kind of targets you should be aiming to hit. And that's been really helpful in terms of career planning. But in terms of coaching, I think working with you um, has opened my eyes to the importance of um, prioritizing what's important in my life in general, in terms of career, family, my health, my friendships, that whole package of what I am and taking ownership of saying, well, this is what important is important to me and this is how I want to progress. Because I've realized very early on that I'm not the kind of person who likes to let life happen to her. No. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, I just, I, you can't control things, but, but you can be intentional. Yeah. And I think the men mentor has been great in terms of my being intentional in my career. But coaching, I think, has been really phenomenal in terms of taking that intentionality in my career and incorporating it into intentionality in all the other parts mm. of who I am. Because, of course, we get these pieces of advice from mentors, or you need to do this next. Mm. But then sometimes we get in our own way. <laughs> And we don't take the action that we know is good for us. And yeah. that's where I often find that coaching really comes in and helps clear the pathway, whether that's through looking at what the mental block is behind why, why we're not ready to take that step or we're mm -hmm. struggling to, or just the actual practicalities of it's so overwhelming. How do I actually mm -hmm. make that a reality? So I love that. So you get the the piece of advice of what do I do next from the mentor and the coaching has really helped you make that a reality. Yeah. And I love the fact that you say practicalities because mm. you're right. Because from the mentor's point of view is, okay, you've done this work. Can you, you can write it up and send it out. And that, yeah, that's great. It'd be look great on my CV that I have this publication. Um, and then, but the practicalities are, I open the, the page, the word document, and I don't feel like writing and, we had this conversation earlier I'm getting pinged by emails and I'm like oh this person wants this for me I need to do this I need to respond to this email yeah and coaching has helped me with things like actually take out time blocks you need to block out a focus period of time either to plan a project or to write a paper put it in your diary and it sounds so common sense or intuitive but I don't do I didn't used to do that and I, I think a lot of people don't do that either block out time for what's important to you and triage things like we were saying triage emails <laughs> absolutely the queen of the inbox <laughs> practicalities that will then make you look like oh as a clinician scientist of course I know what I'm doing I'm organized and I've followed the pathway <laughs> but I think coaching has been really helpful in getting me to um, or teaching me the practicalities of <laughs> how to make those output happen, outputs happen so it looks like I know what I'm doing. 
So I want to ask you about that, you know, your future steps. If we were to talk to you in, hmm, I want to say five years time, but I'm actually going to say if we were to talk to you in 10 years time. Okay. Who will we be meeting in 10 years time? Um, in 10 years time, I would hope that you still be meeting jovial love, lover of life, Izzy, always mm -hmm. before last. Um, but, but seriously, in terms of, of my career, I would want to, of course, be an established clinical scientist, um, working in the NHS and doing research, having a, a research group. Um, I'd want to, um, I love working with young scientists. I love seeing that light bulb moment in when they grasp something or when they, when they realize something. And I'm also a big fan of letting them know that there is life outside of medicine or academia or research. Like you're a whole person. Yeah. And we need to live our lives as whole people and not just, um, <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to use the word lab rat, but not, you know what I mean? Not just yeah. someone who's based, focused on academia. Um, I'd also want to be able to... Um, have delved into other areas of, of interest. Um, mm -hmm. So one of my long-term plans is to look into being able to consult for industry. Because I think I've learned a lot along my pathway and I, I'm still learning and I, I have so much more to learn. But um, I, I would like to be able to consult in such a way that I can make things easier or rather fit at the interface between the NHS, academic research, industry. Um, I, 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 I've identified that that's one of my skills. Mm -hmm. I think I'm really good at um, the translational aspect, actually, being able to look down a pipeline and say, okay, I think this is where this, this is the direction in which this can go. And I, I'd really like the opportunity to expand that a bit and learn and grow. Um, maybe not so much as a, a group leader or a group PI, but within other spheres. So uh, watch this space. Watch this space. Watch our industry. Here is <laughs> Yes, I love that. And I want to now track backwards. So if we were to go back, hmm, let's do 10 years again. So if we were to go backwards 10 years from where you are now, mm. what is the one piece of advice that you would give yourself back then? Being intentional isn't weird. Mm -hmm. Don't worry so much about whether you're weird for being intentional and focused. Because I used to, I, I think 10 years ago, I used to think there was something wrong with me <laughs> for being so focused and for asking these questions and for not letting life happen to me and then make decisions based on what had happened in life. Um, I used to try <laughs> to be more fly by the seat of my pants and more, um, I don't know, spontaneous. But then, um, yeah, I realized that just wasn't me. <laughs> so I would tell myself to not worry so much about being intentional and being a planner. The lists come in helpful. <laughs> so it's fine. The lists come in handy. Yeah. And I know that every yeah. time you have a goal in mind for yourself, you do, once that's set as an intention, you do sit down and work it all backwards. Mm real depth and detail so that moving forward you know exactly how 
to make that a reality. And it does make a huge difference for your ability to, to be where you are today. Yeah. I mean, Hannah, one thing I will also say, and I got asked this question uh, by a colleague. Um, she said, what do you think is, she was asking me what, she, what I think some of my strengths are. That, or she said, what one thing do you think has allowed you to progress? Mm. where you have done because it looks like you've just progressed so seamlessly and I said lifts (laughs) but also not being not being afraid to stop and swerve I make lifts but I've realized that I'm able to quickly assess whether something is working or not and if it's not working I stop track back and try a different direction Mm. And it doesn't matter. I don't say to myself, well, I've spent all my time working on this, so I have to make it work. I realize that I am able to say, well, this is not working, so I need to swerve and try something else. Yeah, such an important lesson. That's been really helpful for me. And I hope all of the people who have done research or who are still in research really heed that piece of advice because we can keep going at something and go for a long time and it not be the best use of our time as well Mm -hmm. so having that check in with yourself that constant reflection and reviewing of what's going on makes a huge difference to your ability to move forwards Mm. for sure exactly yeah yeah I love it I wanted to thank you so much for sharing your journey and your pathway so far as some of the pivotal moments along the way and the key challenges that you'd faced and what a lovely outlook that you have for yourself moving forwards and the fact that you you also want to become a role model that teaches not just how to make that a reality for others but also how to see people as whole people not just their work but whole people too so that they can be happy and have great relationships and have good health and develop themselves as well as creating great impact in the world exactly well thank you for having me and i've said this before you're really easy to talk to so i've had a really great time thank you for listening to women in stem career and confidence to get further support in your journey join me in breakthrough unleashed on facebook